0: That have ever existed um beal will argue in his uh commentary that this is mourning that is befitting of repentance therefore he sees gentiles mourning anew at the abuses of the lord and, and israel mourning anew at the abuses of the lord at his first coming tearfully yet joyfully mourning and uh we'll see in the scriptures why that could be the case um, i hear over and over again in my devotions i heard it again this morning that this earth is no place, uh, once you leave this earth, it's no time for praise. We, we, you know, will the dead praise you? The, the psalmist will ask. Listen to Psalm 115, verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Well, now, is that true? Because Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he would rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Do you think there's any praise going on right now between Paul and God or my dad and God? I think so. So what is the perspective of the psalmist or Ecclesiastes when it makes statements like this, the dead do not praise the Lord? Um, I I think that the psalm is focused from this life, from this world, Uh, that wisdom literature is focused from this world, the perspective of this world. And so um, um, those who are not with us now are not praising God here. And the focus of the scriptures is very much on praising God here. This is a special window that we live in. It's a window of faith. It's an opportunity to walk by faith, the opportunity to praise God who you have not seen. That is different. That is different in its quality and its glory than praising God once you see him. And, and so the kind of praise that we have now, the kind of opportunity that we have now, it's over with. When you're in the grave, that's over. You're in his presence. Yes, you're praising him there, but that's not what the scriptures are focused on in these passages. So, um, um, the specifics of—sorry about that—the uh, speci- specifics of um, how Revelation one is talking about glorifying God, every eye will see Him, and they will wail because of Him—I think it's very much focused on this world and this earth, and, um, and and it's from that vantage point. Now, the specifics of how the coming of the Lord are going to go down—we're going to study in chapters twenty through twenty-two. And, and that's going to be a gift because even as we go back to Zechariah tonight for a little bit of clarity, Zechariah is still kind of that mountain view where you've got all these mountain peaks and things aren't clear, what's what. Revelation 20-22 seems to be laying things out in a, a chronological order and the language seems very purposeful to that end. And, uh, and, and so, again, as we study Revelation, we'll see more. At the time of the rapture, Uh, That is not the second coming as we infer a rapture, a pre-tribulation rapture. At the time of the rapture, the Bible is not clear on what the world will see. So when it talks about Jesus coming in the clouds, the rapture is described that way. The second coming is described that way. And and so I don't see this being as the rapture necessarily because we just don't see that as being a time of judgment on the world. Now, obviously, if you take out 5%, 10%, 20% of humanity, that's going to leave behind some problems. But, um, but we, we, just, we just don't. Listen to the rapture passage in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, the church who are alive and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Um, whenever I see these, uh, what I infer as to be a pre-trib rapture, I don't see clear judgment against the wicked at the rapture. And, um, and, and um, there's also, with the pre-trib rapture, Israel, there's no indication that they're going to be surrounded by enemies, desperate for their Messiah, w- w- mourning over the Messiah that they had formerly pierced. But we will see that kind of a disposition at the second coming where they are desperate and the Lord comes and they repent and they have his heart of grace that Zechariah calls a heart of grace where they wail over him who they pierced. Um, So with that, let's go to Zechariah chapter 12 and and just look at a few things there um, regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12. The passage I want to look at is really Revelation 14, but I want you to appreciate a problem that I have here in, in, in Zechariah 12 through 14. Um, because it's going to relate to a same problem I'm going to have in the book of Revelation. Who is taking the action when it says, for instance, the word Lord, Yahweh, in the Old Testament? Is the word Yahweh always referring to God the Father? Or is it big enough to refer to the Father and the Son? And, and, uh, and, and as you look at this passage, it seems to be big enough to refer to both. In other words, I can't really look at the word Yahweh in, in, in Zechariah 12 through 14 and say, oh yeah, that's always talking about the God, the Father. But as I look at Revelation and I look at the term Almighty in a little bit, uh, Almighty is used ten times in the New Testament, nine times in Revelation. And, and very clearly in some of them, it's the Almighty and the Lamb. So it's distinct, Almighty applying to God the Father. And there's a principle that we'll look at in 1 Corinthians for that. Um, so I'm going to tend to approach the word Almighty, and I might get myself in trouble going through the book of Revelation, as always speaking of the Father. But I really can't do the same thing here with the term Yahweh in, 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 um, in, in uh, Zechariah. It seems to be big enough to comp- accomplish, uh, uh, to refer to both. The Father and the Son. So if we look at uh, Revelation 12, 1, who is writing here? This is the oracle of the word of the Lord, of Yahweh, concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, Yahweh. You see all those capital letters for L-O-R-D, referring to Yahweh. Who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Well, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man in him? Uh, By the decree of the Father, the Son carried out every deed, right? And so there seems to be a little bit of overlap. Look at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David. Again, this is the oracle of the word of the Lord. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, Yahweh, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly as one weeps over a firstborn now you see where I'm starting to see overlap in the word Yahweh as appearing to the one they pierced. Now there is a sense if you kill my sons, you're killing me. But I, I think that here, when it talks about you know piercing Jesus, that you're really piercing the Father. I don't think I would stretch that as much. I think I'd stretch the term Yahweh. My understanding of Yahweh to include both. Um, if we keep looking, um, um, uh, look at verse number two of chapter thirteen. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names. And I will remove from the land. So we've got Yahweh in action. Chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, for Yahweh, when spoil will be taken from you and divided in your midst. For I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken. And the house plundered. And the women raped. Half of the city will go out into exile. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord, Yahweh, will go out and fight with the nations. Now, you notice how we went from first person in verse 2, I will gather, that's God speaking, and now we have the prophet or the narrator speaking in verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley." So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. And um, so... As we, as we look at this, it would seem like this is a time of, of vindication of God, of retribution on enemies. But we see that this is all taking in co- place in context with God having um, poured out in chapter 12, verse 10, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy on the household of David. So God's going to be doing a tremendous work for Israel. So with that, I come back to um, uh, chapter uh, 7. I mean, chapter one of Revelation, uh, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and mourning all the tribes of the earth on account of him. Even so, amen. So as I look at chapter one, verse seven, I am seeing this as being his second coming. I am not seeing this mourning as being enemies of God that are mourning because they're being overcome by their enemy and they're being destroyed. I'm seeing this as being a repentant mourning, that Israel is sorrowful over what they have done. And I would say the application to you and me is this, we ought to be sorrowful anew for what Jesus Christ suffered for humanity, for what he suffered for you specifically, that, um, that there ought to be a, a God-given grace and a God-given sorrow to the person of Jesus Christ for his suffering. And, um, but then you get into this next statement, I am. Just, just like other prophecies, you've got this break-in of this first person. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. And now I've already given you a clue that my disposition for revelation, I'm going to try this, and I've learned in seminary you can hit a wall later on where it's like, nope, your little formula doesn't work. Maybe this term is big enough for both. But, um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach the book of Revelation as seeing the Almighty is referring to God the Father. Um, and, and why would he be breaking in here when we just were talking about the one who's coming, he, him who was pierced? Well, if you look at verse 1, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So it's a revelation that's possessed by Jesus Christ. Yes, a lot of it is about Jesus Christ, but it's also about God the Father. And you're going to see throughout this book, God the Father is not going to be some idle observer and and say, yeah, go get him, son. God the Father is angry at sin, and and he is full of wrath, and God the Father is raining down judgment uh, in this book. And so, um, you know, and so I think this is God the Father speaking up here. Now, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That sounds a lot like verse 17 in chapter 1, where Jesus says, I am the first and the last. And, and yes, they both have the same attributes of deity. But, again, because it's talking about the Lord God, the Almighty, I'm just seeing this as the, the uh, preeminent uh, person of the Godhead. Um, uh, by the way, oh, before I leave the clouds... I, um, the clouds. you see that in verse number 7, he's coming in the clouds? How do we interpret that? Do we take those literally, that he's literally coming in clouds, or is there some symbolism or some metaphor? And I would say, yes, both. And remember our rules for revelation. Number one, does the immediate context tell us the significance of the symbol? Okay, if it says the lampstands are the seven churches, then we know. Problem solved. It's not interpreted here. So where do we go next? We go to the broader scriptures. And if that doesn't tell us, we just take it literally. And, you know, what harm can there be? Just take it literally. He's coming literally in the clouds. Well, we do have other scriptures, I believe, that inform us. Um, In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 9, when they had said these things, they were looking on. As they were looking on, he was lifted up. Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so we do have another scripture there where Jesus literally left in a cloud and in the same manner, in a cloud, he is going to come again. Okay, so our rule number two, I think, would answer it, the clouds are clouds. Okay, um, rule number three is you just take it literally. So we got kind of two rules that are saying just take these clouds literally. What is the metaphor? power transcendence, glory.
1: Let me tell you something. If you,
0: there's all kinds of whack jobs out there who say, yo, I'm, I'm, I'm the king, I'm the ruler, I'm, I'm God, or I'm a God, or whatever. They say all kinds of things. But when somebody's coming in a cloud, <laughs> that, that ups the ante, right? And, and if your enemy is coming in a cloud, uh, if they have the power to do that, it, it, they're just like there. Uh, you're toast, right? Um, and, and if your Lord is coming in the cloud, uh, as he said he would, you know. And so um, I, I just take the cloud as literal. Okay, so back to Almighty God, Almighty God here in verse number uh, 9. Um, the, um, like I say, it, it's um, – it, now, Walver <laughs> disagrees with me on this. He takes Almighty God, uh, uh, you know, the Lord God Almighty here in this verse to be Jesus Christ, and he just gives that as his interpretation. Um, not everybody does. Um, The term Almighty is used ten times in the New Testament, nine here in this book. Um, And and here's the principle behind seeing the Father as the Almighty. And in fact, if you're ever witnessing to a Jehovah's Witness, this is going to be a verse that they're going to bring up. And and we don't have a disagreement that the Father is the Almighty. Um, Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, God under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things were put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So in other words, when God puts all things in subjection under Jesus, that doesn't include God, the Father. Okay? Um, and, and so and then it continues in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight when all things are subjected to him, Then the Son Himself shall also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. So Paul is just making it clear that God the Father will always be, he doesn't use the term here, the Almighty. He will always be the Almighty. There there will always be a submission of the Son to the Father. That when God submits subjects all things to the Son, that would not include God the Father Himself. And Paul said that should be plain. That should be clear, uh, that as God the Father has been almighty and submitted to in all of eternity, so it will be in all the future. So um, that's the principle that I, that, I would, that I would cite here. So in the book of Revelation, you'll see verses like chapter 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now that fits my little formula really nice. I'm not sure the other eight do or the other seven do in the book of Revelation. Um, again, I may meet myself going around the corner and be like, oh, that didn't work out. Um, but, but, but that's at least the approach that I have to this term almighty. Um, the, the, where it tends to get a little bit blurry in the book of Revelation would be in Revelation 16, verses 14 through 16. In Revelation 16, verse 14, it says, for they are demonic spirits performing signs. Who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And in parentheses, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now that terminology, behold, I am coming like a thief. Who have you heard say that in the New Testament? Jesus. I mean, you just heard Jesus say that, I am coming like a thief and be ready. That doesn't mean that doesn't apply to God the Father Almighty, okay? Um, so, um, I, you know, like I say, it's, it's at least a little bit fuzzy there. Uh, I, I haven't run into a wall where I'm like, oh, my theory uh, that the term Almighty always refers to the Father, but I haven't run into something that kills it, but I may yet. We'll see here. Um, and uh, so anyway, for our purposes for now, we'll take Almighty as a reference to the Father, in verse 17, he says, I am the alpha and the omega, very much like Jesus. I am the first and the last. I find this reassuring because so much of my life is wasted. I, I make plans. I execute plans. I pull it off and then I look backwards and I say, should I have even done that? Was it even worthwhile? Was it a waste of time? Uh, there are even things I've done for God that I do, do this for God and then, but it's full of me and my mess. And I'm like, does it even count? Uh, you know, I hope that when we enter God's presence, he really rewards the first half, <laughs> the, 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 that we did something for God, even if our fingerprints of uh, sinful imperfection and short-term thinking are all over it. I, I, I hope that he will do that. But here's the one thing I do know, even the small things you or I do for God, for his glory, he's the first and the last. They're, they're, none of that's wasted. And and there are people who have suffered things for the glory of God. You said, you know what? I'm going to do without for the glory of God. I'm not going to stand up for my rights for the glory of God. I'm going to, you know, just, just, you know, be the doormat in this situation for the glory of God. That is never wasted. He is the first and the last. And of all the things you have to attend to in this life, his glory is number one. And, And so I find that reassuring that he is the alpha, the omega, Christ as well, the first and the last. With God, you have the ultimate purpose of everything. Everything you do with him will be eternally valuable and worthwhile. Um, So as we wrap up tonight's study, Jesus Christ is coming in the clouds. um, And at his coming, Zechariah said he's going to put a spirit of grace upon those that pierced him so that they will mourn. Um, I I think that that's what this is when, when it When it it says he's coming in the cloud, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn. I think this is a spirit of grace. I think it's a spirit of repentance. That's my suspicion here. Um, And uh, I think we should all love Jesus to the point that we would mourn anew for what he has suffered for us. Um, And then finally, um, God the Father. He's not passive in the book of Revelation. You're going to see him all over it. He is hot with anger. Uh, He is angry at sin. He is angry at rebellion. He's full of wrath and vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, say the Lord. Guess what? You're going to see a lot of that in the book of Revelation. He is the Alpha and the Omega.